Hi, my name is Wendy Weber. And my name is Sydney Bowie. Welcome to Nobody Chooses Homelessness. A podcast dedicated to changing the cultural narratives about homelessness and shedding light on how we can mobilize to be part of the solution. In this podcast, we'll talk to everyday people, experts, entrepreneurs, and activists who are helping their unhoused neighbors find their way home again. We work for City Relief, a nonprofit organization dedicated to serving people facing extreme poverty and homelessness. City Relief shows up weekly as a mobile outreach offering people free meals, supplies, and connection to resources for housing, employment, and health care. More importantly, we offer people friendship, community, and belonging. We both have years of experience working systemically and on the ground to end homelessness. We believe that in order to end homelessness, it's going to take a holistic approach with people from all walks of life helping their neighbors in need. Today, we're joined by a very special guest, Richard Vernon. Richard is an incredible individual who has dedicated his life to making a difference in disaster recovery and resiliency. He's a strategic thinker and a talented storyteller who knows how to make things happen. Richard's passion for helping others is remarkable, and he's now applying his expertise in disaster recovery to the pressing issues of homelessness and poverty. He's leading a citywide effort to increase access to clean personal hygiene services with the aim of providing a much needed entry point to have conversations with the community and connect them with vital resources. It's through initiatives like this that Richard is making a real impact and I have no doubt that he will continue to inspire and motivate others to take action and make a real difference in the world. We're truly lucky to have him with us today, and I'm excited to dive into his work and learn more about his incredible journey. Hi, Richard. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Totally my pleasure. So uh, just to start, could you tell us a little bit about uh, how you grew up and if that had an impact on the work you're doing now? Oh, well... I grew up um, in different parts of Scotland in kind of a, an English bubble. What was the biggest impact of that? Well, my parents uh, raised me um, in a socially conscious Christian household, and I never had the right accent for anywhere I've ever lived ever in my life. So um, there's generational not quite belonging going back to the Second World War in my family. You know, and now I'm in, in America, and my wife and I are both immigrants, and our child is mixed race, and New York is a place where all of that is kind of normal. There's definitely something about the, the not being allowed to belong that resonates with me about homelessness work. And, and the people that we work with, because they're not. And obviously their experiences. Um, uh, it's like I have a, a little sketch on the back of an envelope of not belonging, and they have the full-on immersive theatre experience, but um, my back of the sketch envelope is uh, enough of a portal for me to be able to enter into conversation and relationship. And... Uh, and be motivated to, um, to to do something about it, just like you guys. I love the picture of you've got the sketch that gives you a little bit of a portal into the full experience. That's that's a really great way to put it. Um, and also, so your background's in disaster recovery. Uh, my professional background for the last 10 years, yes. Okay. Yeah. And 
we think or I think the disaster is like tsunami, really kind of a fast destruction thing. But sure, homelessness is not necessarily that. Um, right. So can you unpack for our listeners like the real time slow moving disaster disasters of homelessness? Yes. So um, and I love that you use the phrase because I think the first time I, I said slow moving disaster, everybody in the room furrowed their brows and looked very confused. Um, for a sort of CNN recognized disaster, a hurricane, a tornado, an act of terrorism, um, a huge wildfire, you know, the kind, those kinds of things that make it onto the news. Whoever survives is almost entirely, unless they were rich to begin with, and at least for a few days afterwards, even if they were, almost entirely dependent on the whims of government programs and the kindness of strangers. And with situations that on a household scale are undoubtedly huge crises, like suddenly being homeless or uh, growing up with generational poverty so that your family has never been satisfactorily fed without a soup kitchen or a food pantry or um, the gang of church ladies making sure that there was a, a pie at least once a month or I don't know, whatever the thing was, is also the kindness of strangers and the whims of government programs. So this situation is very similar. It's just more scattered and less visible. Um, and if you, if you are any of the things that make um, the impact of a CNN recognized disaster worse, um, why not treat those things with the same kind of tools that we treat the CNN disaster? So there's nothing inherent to being queer, person of color, um, a woman, um, not somebody who has English as their first language that makes you more likely to encounter a hurricane, right? But those things do all make it more likely that if you encounter a hurricane, you will be more severely affected by it and take longer to recover fully if you ever do recover fully. And there's research that shows that and I'm only talking about the fiscal rather than emotional realities here, white middle-class homeowners have so many programs uh, designed around them as the kind of default American that they come out of um, disaster recovery slightly better off than they went in. And everybody else comes out worse off and you can... I don't need to map out for you the the kind of ladder of of worseness, but you can imagine who comes out worst worst. Um, and, and none of it's none of it is surprising. And down there, at the least likely to recover fully, if at all, are the people who are living in disasters already. People who are living on the street. Uh, people who are um, already thoroughly decentered by power. But they're the center of their own stories and experience. 
Um, and so I think part of the work is uh, to expand our idea of of us um, for, for it to matter who we mean when we say we. I mean, it does matter who we mean when we say we, but you can tell when, I don't know, like if... Um, if a white politician says, America, we, we need to do a better job of taking care of black Americans, right? That we is clearly a, a white voice and a white perspective, right? Am I making sense? And that you can do the same thing with uh, attitudes around homelessness or poverty or um, whatever it is. Um, so that significantly that significantly colors my approach and i think probably in some ways comes from that you know life of never quite fitting in even though the degree to which i've never quite fitted in has been much much tinier it's made me sensitive to it you know i am used to the first thing people doing asking is asking me about my accent, but I have never liked it. Oh, are you Australian? Is not how you see how I'm doing. That is not how is your heart today, Richard. That, that is not, um, is life beautiful right now? That is not, hey, are you, can I get you something to eat? That's, oh, you sound weird. Let me see if I can play a game of pin the tail on the donkey with your accent and origins. So it's an instantly objectifying in a small way, but it's given me, I suppose it could have hardened me. Now I'll pat myself on the back. It's given me some uh, um, fairly instinctive, how are you being boxed into a, a cage that doesn't hold you properly, that isn't comfortable, that isn't designed for you, that you don't want to be in. Yeah, and as you said, that might be the sketch in the back of the envelope, but it gives you a right. unique perspective. And the similarity is not being seen. Yeah. Right? So I don't know that it's unique. I think uh, that we can all we can all find a path to that portal if we want to. There, are, nobody is completely accepted everywhere, right? So all of us have had at least a sniff of a taste of it and we can sit in that and imagine it and listen and learn and not make people who truly are routinely decentered by power be our teachers it's not their job um, but it is all of our job to be the best students we can be at city relief we aren't the only ones in the business of helping people this podcast is brought to you by our longtime supporters and friends at butafuco and associates they are dedicated to helping people rebuild their lives after a serious injury. They are a national injury law firm that has won over 500 million in verdicts and settlements for people struggling to overcome medical malpractice, construction accidents, auto accidents, injuries, wrongful death, and workers' compensation. Their team of personal injury attorneys has a genuine passion for seeking justice, and they understand the hardships that come with debilitating injuries that change the course of someone's life. If you or a loved one has experienced a serious injury, our friends at Butterfuco and Associates will take care of you. Contact them at 1-800-NOWHURT.COM or 
4878. Yeah, I had that exact thought when you, when you shared like the idea of the portal that if we are, if we allow ourselves to, right, we can examine our own lives and see there are ways in which we can um, understand you know, maybe just a small, a small bit about what somebody who is marginalized um, is kind of a little bit of what their experience is. Like there are usually something that makes us more, uh, more connected um, than, than, uh, than separated if we're allowing ourselves to really be honest about where we are. Um, right. If we're willing to expand our, our us. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you mentioned uh, when you first used that that term of like slow moving disaster that you kind of got like these furrowed brows and like because it's mm. kind of confusion. I'm interested to know when you use that com- that analogy, right? And comparison compare it to you know the disaster that people have an understanding of. What has been the reception with that that perspective? Um, is it kind of received? Is it understood? Or um, it's been an interesting journey, I think, for that. So in the, the kind of homelessness space, my then uh, director and I brought this sort of language into meetings with um, organizations like City Relief, right? And very quickly, the idea that um, those organizations were doing disaster work caught on for those organizations. like. Uh, Josiah and Jess and Teresa and company, like they, they got that quickly um, because it makes, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, there was more uh, befuddlement in the disaster world. Oh, it's mission creep, or oh, that's social services. That's not, that's not emergency management. Even though emergency managers talk about a thing called the disaster cycle that includes preparedness and mitigation. Um, and to me, it's good preparedness for everyone to be housed. It's good mitigation for everyone to be housed safely, securely, not in a flood zone, um, you know, not in a not in a repeat impact neighborhood. Uh, all these things, all these things, all tied together. Um, and we could point to research and statistics and uh, kind of anecdata. Um, but the thing that shifted it um, on a more global level rather than individual by individual, like I, we could evangelize that perspective and, um, and get converts one by one. You know, oh, I see what you mean about this slow moving disaster thing. Oh, um, but, but the thing that shifted it for the entire um, nonprofit disaster world was COVID. Because in New York, all of the disaster organizations and all of the social service organizations that have a disaster component to their work, the Catholic charities and Salvation Armies and Red Crosses and so on and so on, and the small grassroots networks, Lower East Side Ready, and these kinds of, you know, the, the East Harlem Emergency Network, all pivoted hard to doing nothing other than trying to get hold of PPE and trying to find food to meet the staggering food insecurity that happened immediately. As soon as people in hourly paid jobs didn't have hours of pay, as soon as 
people working remotely started losing their jobs. Um, all of that, the, the amount of need for something as basic as meals uh, was staggering. And the organizations that largely met it were, were disaster organizations or the disaster teams in bigger organizations that have a disaster component. And so um, the team I was part of spent two years making sure that a network of food pantries had enough food. That was it. That was the full-time job, pretty much, which is wild. Then, then you learn that um, the major source of, of volunteer positions in the city, which is um, New York Airs, in normal pre-COVID times, something like 60% of its volunteer slots were around food insecurity. Admissions, um, this is the hub of uh, Western civilization in all kinds of ways, right? It's New York City, and that's how precarious food security is here for so many millions of people. Um, so when, when COVID popped the lid on that, um, then all of our disaster compadres were like, oh, yeah. Huh. Yeah, when you were talking about people who are in a hurricane already. Yeah. I suffered the most. The first thing I thought of was COVID. People who are experiencing homelessness, how that affected. It was, it, like you said, it was a global experience. Um, right. And so people who are already food insecure, it, it all tipped the scales for people to the next worst place. Right. Um, and Or sometimes not like a few places even further down. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and we noticed in, in the city that uh, the homeless population seemed to be largely forgotten by the city. Um, all the public places were shut down, difficult to access any kind of hygiene, the public, you know, um, public spaces, public bathrooms and all of those things. And right. You couldn't um, even go and pee in Starbucks. E exactly. A hundred percent. Right. Um, and all of a sudden it was like, is anyone realizing that? and how many tens of thousands of people this is affecting. So this is the first time I learned about shower power um, yeah. and their response to that. Um, so tell us, tell us about shower power. Well, the origin story is all pre-me, right? Um, but uh, the first shower is younger than the organization. So the first shower season that the organization had was summer of 2020 which is peak, peak COVID. So at least the stories all, all tie together. But um, in 2017, the organization began as a group of volunteers from the meatloaf kitchen in the Lower East Side because uh, lunch guests at Meatloaf Kitchen, which has been going for decades, and it's this wonderful thing um, where people can go for breakfast and lunch and sit uh, um, have a good meal, a, a nice table with a tablecloth and friendly folks. And a bunch of volunteers from there realized that some of the guests were washing themselves at the sinks in the bathroom, where anyone who opened the door, they would be revealed to whoever was walking past. Right? There was no, um, it wasn't private in any way. 
it wasn't fully in public, but you know what I mean? Like it's not how you would choose to, to wash yourself. Um, and in speaking to guests, realized this is pre-COVID, how hard it was to have a wash if you live on the street. Or even if you're in a shelter because of how limited access to, to showers are in a shelter, you're not getting a shower every day. So they had this idea of somehow providing showers to people who are living on the street. And they began with what gets various called toiletry kits or hygiene kits or personal care kits. But, you know, we're all, all familiar with them from outreach work. Some ideally reusable bag with a zip is always the best, but maybe it's just a, maybe it's just a Ziploc or um, a lunch baggie, depending on who assembled it and where it came from with, uh, you know, a toothbrush and travel size shampoo and toothpaste and soap and all deodorant, a razor, um, menstrual products, like all that kind of stuff, condoms and lube these days. And, and so they started sourcing, um, supplies and, and hosting packing parties and, uh, they had corporate relations. So, uh, some of that was, you know, a, a bank would have a, a packing party for its employees or whatever. We started getting shower power kits for distribution through street outreach work. Um, and met the founders and, and got engaged with them and kind of, I suppose, to use the phrase, caught the vision. Um, and then uh, COVID came around and when New York City was the, the global epicenter for COVID and we had um, like Samaritan's Purse came and did that pop-up hospital in Central Park. It was just... Doctors Without Borders brought a shower trailer to New York City to try to meet the the public health crisis of lack of hygiene for people on the street. Um, housing for all is healthcare for all, and hygiene for all is healthcare for all, right? And all this uh, really solid advice about washing your hands as frequently as possible and staying indoors and away from other people, all of that was great if you had a sink and a door you could close. But um, if you were sleeping on the subway steps, what the heck were you supposed to do? So Doctors Without Borders brought in a shower trailer, parked at the Salvation Army's um, Harlem Temple in their uh, in the car park, their parking, I'm sorry, it's very British, in the parking lot of Harlem Temple, um, up there on Lenox Avenue and um, by Lenox Hospital. And then Shower Power took over running that program. Um, the following year had a trailer um, of our own. I'm going to start talking about it like I was involved and it was mine, but it's not, it's not true yet, right? We're still only in 2021 and I started in December 2022. So, so, Summer of, I'm saying summer, it's really actually from spring to uh, fall, sometime in April to the end of October, maybe into November. The reason being that you cannot really winterize a shower trailer. Um, and even if you could, you would need to have somewhere warm for people to get dressed again when they're wet. That is not unpleasant and unsafe. So 
there's a shower season and my shorthand for that mentally is summer, but it's, it could be as much as seven months of the year. And even New York doesn't have seven month summers. So shower season 2021, Salvation Army Times Square Core, which is also a, a theater space, uh, Theater 315, um, has this beautiful big back lot uh, going uh, all the way from the back of the building to um, 47th Street. And it, it is on both sides, tall buildings um, and with a, a tall gate from 47th Street. So it feels... It feels private. So we were there. And then shower season of 22, because they were doing work in the lot at um, Theatre 315, um, we went to the, uh, the Salvation Army thrift store warehouse on, um, in Midtown, also Hell's Kitchen, not that far from the Times Square location, which is called the Times Square Court, but is really... Health Kitchen. And we were tucked in a, a corner of their quite busy parking lot and there were trucks uh, with donations and all that kind of thing all happening as well. And so in just three shower seasons, the organization has provided over 5,000 showers with just one operating trailer um, and given out over 20,000 uh, kits, mostly through partner organizations. And so those are uh, those are sort of big achievements for a pretty lean operation. Um, we have a second trailer under construction just now, and we're looking for a home for that in Queens. Um, and then longer term, um, possibly other trailers, but it would be wonderful to have a, a host site with underused or unused bathrooms that would let us come in and run the program because usually what's daunting is the running of the program and that's the part that shower power can do and has successfully done and has the numbers and relationships to to show for it um so then we could go year round um i'm also interested in if there's a, a community center say that is looking at a renovation to become more ADA compliant, right? To talk to them about including publicly accessible hygiene facilities in that plan. And then you could have wheelchair accessible showers indoors year round. There would be room for partner services. You could have a Deb Berkman there or, you know, someone like her, not nobody's really all the way like Deb, but you know, you could have an attorney or a team of attorneys. You could have um, you could have a clinic. Uh, you could have the graduating class from the New York School of Podiatric Medicine, maybe if they were interested, um, come and uh, and do foot care, which is a huge thing for folks on the street, as both of you know. You could have a wound care clinic. You could have diabetes screening. Um, you could have referrals to stabilization beds or supportive housing or whatever folks were ready for. Um, you could just be building relationships of trust until people who the system is deeming uh, assistance resistant start to, to feel like they can trust again. Because nobody, nobody's really resistant 
they've just been burned so many times they don't know who to trust anymore if anyone the more the more time you have um and the safer and more welcoming and enjoyable the environment the the easier it is to foster and hothouse um those kind of healthy connections and then those connections go go both ways City Relief is a nonprofit dedicated to connecting people who are experiencing homelessness and poverty to food, clothing, and vital resources they need to survive. We show up week after week on New York City and New Jersey streets, regardless of the weather, providing meals and community to those who feel forgotten. We can only do this because of the generosity of everyday people like you who want to see a world where our homeless neighbors are cared for. To find out how you can give or volunteer and make a real impact on homelessness, click the link in the description of this episode. Which is a another piece of this expanding of of us that um, there was a thing that was piloted a few years ago at the Brooklyn Public Library that I thought was just this gorgeous idea. Um, in their cafe space, they had tables where a given language was spoken. So if you uh, wanted to learn Ukrainian, you could go and sit at the Ukrainian table, and then very likely the person you were learning from, uh, from a kind of crude socioeconomic perspective, was would normally be somebody you would expect to be providing something to. But instead, they were the expert. And I don't know what skills and gifts are unseen by most of the city in the population of people who are unhoused because they're just seen as the population of people who are unhoused right um and it's it's not this is another thing from disaster work the gap between the planned for and the planners in in disaster work the size of that gap usually dictates how long a long-term recovery is and how effective a long-term recovery is. So when that gap is small or non-existent, when affected communities are very integral in the planning and have already been integral in the mitigation and preparedness pieces, then the response and recovery pieces are much healthier. Uh, If those kinds of models are applied to homelessness, I think I think everything changes. And I think everything changes in ways that we can't imagine or describe yet because we've never tried it here. So we don't know, but it has to be better. And I think it has to be significantly better. And it's not, it's not just the, um, how, can, how can we better plan for the homeless? I'm doing air quotes if you're not seeing me. Um, it's what do we all lose by not having Steph's community organizing brilliance in the planning? Or what are we all losing by not having Jake's artistry? Or I don't know what the thing is because because no one is making a concerted effort to find out. And the, uh, and the us that cares is still this little limited pool of well-intentioned housed folks. 
Yeah, I love that insight. It's one of the things I think we've mentioned a couple of times on, on different episodes about how like homelessness doesn't just impact those who are homeless, right? There is this larger impact and even that like reality of there are things that just the world, right? The culture is kind of missing out on. There are, there are conversations I've had with people time and time again on the street who have amazing ideas and amazing gifts and amazing abilities, right? But because of the way systems are and because of things that have kind of come against them, they are not having the, the, the opportunities to operate in all that they have to offer. Um, and so I think, I think calling that out and, and, and making sure that's something we, we think about, like, man, someone coming through this process uh, is not just a benefit for them and their family. Like, it's a benefit for all of us, right? Right. Um, so it matters. It should matter to all of us. Right. Uh, I mean, may, maybe the, the solution to the global flu vaccine is sleeping rough in um, the 6th Avenue subway station tonight. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, um, but it doesn't matter if it's not because whoever is sleeping in that subway station tonight still has the full dignity and worth of any other human and should be able to be someone who expects to be treated as having the same dignity and worth as any other human. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned, uh, and it's something I've, I've never thought about, right? There being a, a shower season, that reality of, man, there are just going to be times throughout the year where even that model is just, it's just not going to work. And so there being sometimes these barriers to providing this access to hygiene, even for those who have purposed, you know, purpose organizations, purpose themselves to providing it. And so I think about that, like that, some that limited access. There is a, there, I remember I had a conversation with a guy, uh, I think it was an SDR part and, just as a standard to city relief, we don't, someone asked for money. We don't, we don't provide money. And he was asking if I had a couple of thousand. I was like, I don't, but you know, what is it that you're trying to get? What do you need? He's like, I just, mm -hmm. I just want to go buy a nail clipper because my nails are good. And I just want to be able to, and so I was, you know, luckily been able to just kind of run to the store and get it for him. And he, but it wasn't this thing of like, I don't care how I look. I don't care about my hygiene. I don't care. Right. It was this desire to genuinely kind of take care of himself. Right. What do you think that most people don't really realize about the access to proper hygiene for someone who's experiencing homelessness. I think that it's, uh, I, again, it's the sort of thing, if people actually run the thought experiment in their head, then it becomes, it's not hard to, to imagine. I just think mostly people don't. I mean, I remember being in a, uh, a Thanksgiving dinner planning conversation. Um, and somebody in the room said, well, I mean, a lot of these folks have very poor hygiene. And I, I was, I was mad <laughs> because it's not true. A, a lot of, a lot of folks are physically dirty because they don't have any way not to be. And that's not the same as having poor hygiene. <laughs> I was a 16 year old boy at my hygiene probably wasn't amazing. Right. But it, but I had the option. I didn't shower this morning. I'm not going to blame being European because it's winter and I'm, my skin's dry and I showered yesterday. So, and I didn't do anything to make me smelly. So I'm fine not showering today, but I chose not to. And if before going to bed, I'm like, you know what? 
tomorrow's going to be a really early start. I'm going to shower just now. I can. It's not because there's a, a designated time slot for me. And if I, I miss my, my Wednesday morning slot, I've got to wait till Saturday. I can shower whenever I like because I need feet away from my very own shower. And it's, unless somebody else is using it, you know, and then I can bang on the door and say, hey, hurry up. Yeah, it's really interesting. Don't use all the hot water. Yeah. <laughs> that the idea of hygiene, it should presuppose choice and access, right? Right, um, right. That without that, um, especially if someone would like access, it's not about bad hygiene. It's about bad access. Right. And the, the truth is, mo mostly, most people want that. Most people prefer to be clean. I prefer to be clean. I'm currently clean by my standards, or I would have a, had a shower this morning, right? That's, but that's the, the whole point is that it's up to me. Um, and it's not up to anybody else. And it's not, it's not up to a lack of resources in being imposed on me. Or, um, I mean, I think the origin story of shower power, the, the, uh, the shock of seeing someone try to completely clean themselves out of bathroom sink in a, a soup kitchen environment is telling like that's, that was the best option. Right. A bad option, but still taken because the only option, right? Cause it's the only option It's that or not be clean. Um, we packed up our, um, our health kitchen site on November 5th, which I don't know if you remember, it was a, it was an unusually warm Saturday. It was in the low seventies, I think. And it was very sunny. It was a really one of those incredibly gorgeous New York fall days. Like it was just, it was lovely. Um, and I rolled up, this is before I'd officially started, but I wanted to see the program in action and meet the staff. And I knew that some of uh, the founders were going to be there to help because, it, you know, the whole site had to get packed up, all this stuff. Um, but the program was running that morning. So I actually got to meet and hang out with the last two guests of the season. Um, one of them was a woman who had already had all of her shower and was dressed and uh, brushing out her hair and chatting. Um, and uh, the other was a, a guy who emerged from one of the shower stalls while I was there. And he came out shirtless and toweling off his hair with his elbows out and vigorous toweling, toweling, you know, with this awesome sun catching his once blonde long hair um, and a huge smile on his face. And he looked very happy and was... Uh, and he was very chatty. So we were chatting away. And, but just that, um, like everything about that moment is why, uh, is why it matters to have organizations providing the kind of service that Shower Power provide. It doesn't have to be us. Um, it just has to happen. It, you can't have the shower operating in cold weather because the trailer can't handle freezing, but you also can't have the shower operating in, uh, in cold weather because you have to get completely changed in the shower stall. So 
you're constrained and you get a wet sleeve if you touch the wall and like this guy could come out and towel himself off in the sunshine which was nice because there was sunshine but also again best option you know um he probably wouldn't choose normally to do his last bit of drying and dressing in front of people packing up boxes of soap. Right? That's probably nobody's first choice. And we we got talking and uh, he he was talking about how um, how important it is to be clean. He's like, you can't understand unless uh, unless you're used to being dirty, uh, how important this is, not just for our physical health. Like I, now I'm going to go and have some food and my hands will be clean, but for everything else, like I feel like I can be around people. And as he was leaving, he was, you know, very profusely thanking us. And I was like, I don't even work here yet. I don't deserve any of your thanks. Um, he's like, no, but you know, you're going to be part of this and it's a great organization. I just wanted to thank you. I said, what are you going to do when this closes down? Like, what are you, what are you going to do? I mean, I'm looking at a dirty winter, I guess. That broke my heart. Like, to be like, this lovely fall day is the last day I'm sure I'm going to be clean until the spring. Now, there are options that he, he might manage to make work. It's not, it probably isn't the last day he's going to be clean before the spring. It's the last day he knew he was going to be clean before the spring. That's a really intense constant burden that has come to feel normal for thousands of our neighbors to not know when I will next be clean to know I probably couldn't shouldn't put this sandwich in my mouth because it's coming from these fingers but on the other hand I have to eat like for for people to be constantly running those kinds of a uh, risk analysis calculus, uh, you know, is is it, it is an unwellness that that's the reality for thousands and thousands of people in a city as wealthy and important as this one. Yeah, and we talk about the importance of treating people with dignity and seeing their humanity, and the reality is not being clean is walking around feeling like you are you don't have dignity just walking right. around in that state, which right. is really dehumanizing. Right. It's dehumanizing from, from certain lenses. I know we treat people with an awareness of their dignity, but I think that dignity is inherent. And the more you are treated with recognition of your inherent dignity, the, the more you're able to live into it yourself, I think. I don't think what, what we do dignifies any of the people we're trying to serve. What we do makes their dignity a little easier to perceive. That is, that is beautifully, beautifully put. 
Um, you spoke to this a little bit, but I just want you know, to give you the opportunity to kind of expand on it. Where would you like uh, for Shower Power, for the organization to grow to? What would you like it to grow to over the next few years? Um, okay, so there is this like a, two, a two-pronger. One is um, more sites. Um, so we have this queen site coming and one is, and uh, and sites that we can go year round that are indoors that we could have wraparound services more easily i, I think of something like uh, a don't walk by or um or a city relief outreach where there's there's a thing that's the hub the anchor stall at the mall as it were and then all the other smaller stores kind of plug in around it and people can come and make use of whatever they want nobody's making you have the the vegan soup, but it's totally there if you want it. And most people do. Uh, nobody's going to make you talk to an attorney, but if you've got a legal crisis and uh, someone doing some intake with you recognizes that and makes the suggestion that you go and talk to the attorney, then you have the option. I would I love for all of that to be around things we know people will come for. People will come for food. People will come to, be, to wash people will come for medical attention especially if they know that they will receive those things as though it's not an, a favor or or a burden when it's not um or or that they're just being processed through some machine like it's very unpleasant experience like if getting your shower is like trying to get your um get your disability check then it, you know yuck i'll do it because i need to be clean but yeah it's going to be in and out as much as possible we don't i don't want it to be the dmv and so um those those are long-term goals you know how uh, trader joe's is a shopping supermarket experience like any other in most respects right you go in there are things you choose your things you put them in your cart and you go to a check out and you pay for your stuff and you leave with it in bags like going anywhere else but in sharp contrast to my favorite is uh, chains of big big pharmacy chains in in new york where there's a bank of uh, registers and one person working one of them and the supervisor standing watching and that's it and a huge line you know that's like the normal thing in new york when you like all i want is toothpaste and you have to ring the buzzer because they don't trust you not to steal the toothpaste like man I'm getting like screened for toothpaste and then I'm going to wait 15 minutes for the joy of paying for it. And why is nobody at these other registers? You know, at that moment. So I don't want it to be like that. I want it to be much more like the Trader Joe's sort of experience where it's the same thing. I'm still choosing a thing. I'm paying for it. Right. But everybody's smiling at me. Everybody's communicating clearly. Uh, yeah. The back, this is the back of the line and, Sue up there is going to tell you which register to go to, and Sue's going to tell me it's 22, and I'm going to look, and the person waving the flag that says 22 is going to see that I've noticed them and smile and beckon me over, and they're going to ask if, blah, 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 and say, oh, I've been meaning to try the jalapeno corn puffs. Are they good? I don't know. It's my first time, too. Oh, cool. Did you do? Um, do you have enough bags, or do you need a, will the paper bag be okay, or do you want to spend a dollar on the plastic one, right? It's all options, 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 and friendly, 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 and I'll say, no, I'll just stuff it in my pockets, and they're like, cool. Or I'll say, yeah, you know what? Give me two of the plastic bags. I'll pay extra. 
great choice, right? It's all yeah. just like weirdly affirming, but not in a gross way. Why can't it? It could all be like that. It could all be like, it could all be Trader Joe's. Yeah, that really describes the Trader Joe's experience, which you're reminding me. It's really pleasant. But I mean, seriously, the, the idea of choice yeah. is huge, right? As you know, the name of our podcast is Nobody Chooses Homelessness. Yes. So as you hear that or read that, how does that resonate with you? I mean, this is all of the, what we've been talking about is very much you should be able to choose not to wash, not have to bend over backwards to find an opportunity to, to sluice your armpits at a drinking fountain when the cocks aren't looking. Yes, nobody chooses homelessness. Sometimes homelessness is a, feels like a, a less sketchy option, which is not the same as embracing being unhoused, right? There was a guy who used to, I live, uh, I live in Bed-Stuy in Brooklyn. There was a, a, a guy who used to come by often um, and ask for money uh, initially through like, you know, I think I was sweeping the sidewalk and he asked if he could sweep the sidewalk for five bucks or something. Um, but that's how we struck up a, we struck up a bit of a friendship. Um, he had been staying in, uh, in the Bedford Armory. Now this is a long time ago. Maybe it's wonderful now. Um, but the Bedford Armory is just down the street from me and, uh, had a horrible reputation and he had been so terrified of what was going on around him on his first night in there that he left in the middle of the night and didn't go back. It was cold. He wanted to be indoors and safe. So for him to be indoors and unsafe enough that the street was better is still, I would say, not choosing homelessness. Of course, he would still have technically been homeless as a shelter resident, but he wouldn't have been unsheltered. Of course, people don't choose him. Choice is where we feel our dignity. Yes. Allows us to experience that inherent dignity, as you said. Mm -hmm. This has been delightful talking to you, but we want to wrap <laughs> up with a question that we ask all our guests. People are listening and people, they're listening. They, they maybe want to do something. It's a huge huge crisis, homelessness, right? It's mm -hmm. overwhelming, but we believe that everyone can do something. So in your opinion, what's one thing that an everyday person can do to impact the ending of homelessness? Well, they could go to our donate link, which you're posting and become a regular monthly subscriber um, because that is uh, the bread and butter of our shower operations. Most grants um, and foundations are not very excited about funding anything other than what they perceive to be direct service, which is great because that stuff is expensive and needs to be funded. So that's how we buy a shower trailer. That's how we keep uh, stocks of shampoo, all of that stuff, right? The, the, the towel service, which is like one of the ones that hotels use, right? So all our guests get a fresh, clean towel or two. That matters and it costs money. But also, who's, who is running the site? Who is placing the orders for the shampoo? Who is making sure that uh, Andrea feels welcome and someone remembers her name, right? All, all of those things also cost money and... I have this 
uh, after years in the nonprofit world, well, actually predating, but um, sharpened by years in the nonprofit world, a strong objection to the sort of moral worthiness of treating staff badly as some somehow being deemed to be missionally aligned with good service. Like, how does it make sense? Why is it a bragging point that we pay our people peanuts and um, and they burn themselves out because they're so passionate about the mission? Like, our people get paid a good living wage with benefits, um, and we cherish them and nurture them and mentor them for leadership because they are passionate about the mission. That's a much better story to tell, but it's going to take a lot of shifting for foundations to catch that as being a better story. So meanwhile, everyone listening who's like, yeah, that's right. Of course, nobody going to a city relief outreach or a shower power shower as a job should need the vegan soup or they'll go hungry or need the shower that they're helping run because they're staying somewhere that doesn't have one because they can't afford not to. Yeah, that totally makes sense. So if that makes sense to you, click on the link, become a monthly subscriber. Um, and when shower season kicks off again, we'll be looking for regular volunteers if that's something that interests you. And uh, I'm... 501c3 and not partisan, right? This is not party politics, but if homelessness is an issue that matters to you, and we know that most of the things that affect how much choice homeless people have uh, is set at a very local level, if you are somebody who is allowed to vote, do the homework and cast your votes. Like, do the homework for the down ballot stuff for the, the hyper-local stuff where only 15 people ever vote and you might actually swing it, and have a look at what people's perspective on street homelessness is, on shelter location, on the availability of supportive housing, on all of these kinds of things. And if it's not clear from someone's website or from their campaign flyer, go to the meeting, ask the question, and have your supposed deep passion about homelessness being a problem that needs to be solved and how it's this awful and inhumane thing affect what you do in the ballot box. And again, I'm not telling you anything partisan. I'm saying if that's an issue for you, local politics responds to local issues. So let your local politicians know that this is stuff that matters to you because they that's their job. Most of them are in public service because they believe in public service. If they aren't seeing a thing the same way you are, share your perspective. Mm -hmm. Yes, most of us are allowed to vote. Most of us, many of us, could volunteer in an organization we believe in. Some of us can become monthly donors. It's such an important thing to shower power or city relief or an organization that's doing work you believe in. Um, yeah, those are great. Those are great options. Or if you're sitting on a building with a whole bank of ADA compliant showers that you're just for some reason not using and it's only you, so you just have never actually started that shower program you wish was happening, 
reach out to me, info at showerpowernyc.org, and, uh, and we'll figure something out. Like We've got the people with the training and the skills. We have the connections to the towel service and the, the boxes of shampoos. And, uh, and yeah, I'll come in and we'll have a year-round shower program in your underused ADA-compliant banker showers. And the classroom next door can be where NILAG has its legal clinic and on and on and on. Let's do it. If you've got that building, give me a call. No more shower season. It's year round. And if no anyone, more shower season, if any listener has that ability, you can also contact City Relief to this podcast and we will connect you to Richard and Shower Power 100%. Pretty sure you'd probably want to be in that building too. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. I think that partnering <laughs> with, with organizations like yours um, and other like minded organizations uh, doing it together, it's the only way that we can uh, affect change. So, that, Richard, that is my biggest lesson from disaster work is that no organization no program can ever do it alone and uh the only way things happen well is when we talk to each other and co and cooperate thanks sydney thanks wendy hey you yes you listener have you ever been walking down the street and someone who appeared unhoused approached you and asked for money do you ever walk to the train in the morning and see someone holding a sign asking for help what do you do well, don't worry, we are here to help. Click the link in the description of this episode for a quick, easy to use guide packed with helpful tips for how to engage with your neighbors experiencing homelessness.